And as we jump into a time of teaching now, I'd love to introduce to you my good friend, uh, Rick Comstock. He's one of the chaplains with me um, that served the Tascadero Police Department, as well as he was a, a former pastor for a number of years uh, in Tascadero. And he's gonna be sharing about God's grace and how we're saved by that grace. So I'm gonna read for us our scripture out of Acts chapter 15, verses seven through 11. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I am so glad you're here. I it wasn't just the pandemic that affected people's attendance at church. There's always been obstacles to people coming out of their house on a Sunday morning and getting to church. It seems like, it seems like if anything bad happens to a family during the week, a, a, a Christian family, a church-going family, it usually happens on Saturday night or early Sunday morning. I think it's the enemy of our soul. He, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't want this. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, and so much more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. God realizes that, that Christianity is not a lone ranger. It's not a lone ranger experience. It's a community experience. We're meant for fellowship. We're meant for relationship. And I know the pandemic had a really tremendous effect on, on people. Obviously, we couldn't come or didn't come or we were outside, or, and then sometimes the weather was inclement, so we didn't come, and, and you know, we watched online, and and uh, now it's starting, to, it's starting to change. People are starting to come back. So I really appreciate the effort you make. I know it is an effort to, to get up and get ready on Sunday, especially if you have kids and getting them, you know, to motivated to get here. So I just personally, I want to say thank you for coming. And not just because I'm preaching today, this thank you for coming. If I weren't here, um, I'm just grateful that you've decided to come. And I'm honored uh, that Pastor Brandon has trusted his pulpit to me. It's a big deal, church. When, you're, when you have the call of God upon your life to be a pastor, it's a big deal. I mean, it says in Acts uh, 20, 28, it says, keep watch for yourselves and over the flock of God whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this is, this is uh, Luke um, uh, writing in, in Acts, you know, giving instructions to the elders, the leaders of the church. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of God whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So this is a huge responsibility. It talks about in First Peter. It talks about the responsibility that shepherds have, the accountability. We all have an accountability before, accountability before God at the end of our lives. You know, it's, it's, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. There's two judgments. There's the Great White Throne Judgment. We're not going to be there. There's the Bema Seat Judgment. And that's going to, you know, there's going to be a, 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 an accountability, right? Every man stands before God and gives account for himself, the Bible says. So there's going to be an accountability. Now, obviously, our sins will have been taken care of. Jesus takes care of that. But our life, the opportunities we had here and those we missed and those we took advantage of, there's, there's a reward. There's, a, there's an accountability um, there. And, and there's, I think, an extra accountability for those who are called to ministry, and, and so, you know, I, I'm so grateful to Pastor Brandon for him allowing me, trusting me with his pulpit. I consider it a great honor. I, I love your pastor. I've only known him for the last couple of years. I've had the privilege of being a chaplain with the police department for 11 years. And I did, I did that for the first uh, eight or nine years with Pastor Tom Gaddis, who was the, the founder and the pastor of the Father's House for 42 years. He retired a couple of years ago, moved out of the area, and we really were hoping we could find another uh, chaplain, and, and God provided Pastor Brandon. He's a perfect fit. You know, he's younger. He really relates to a lot of the young officers and uh, with young families on the force, and he's just a blessing to us, and he's a personal blessing to me. Not only do I see him on occasion at 
uh, at, at an event or something having to do with the police department, but I also we also make an effort to get together semi-regularly just for encouragement and fellowship and, and to talk about uh, the, the opportunities we have at the police department. So I'm very, very grateful. Uh, I'm a real scripted person. Obviously, I'm not Pastor Brandon, and my, my style's different than his. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, it's not about style anyway. It's about substance. substance. It's not about technique. It's about truth. It's about the truth of God's word. And, and so I want to preach that uh, for you this morning. I, I'd like to open up with, with prayer. Father, I just, I am so, I'm so grateful for your grace. And I'm, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to, to love on my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I believe I don't believe that people hear by accident. I mean, I know they need, to make, they need to make a choice. I mean, some of them made the choice last night, and they kept it. Some of them made the choice last night to come, and then they changed their mind this morning. Some didn't think they were going to be here, and yet they, they, you know, something prompted them to come. And I believe that's because there's a divine appointment. You know, I, 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 I believe that. I, I believe that um, the Spirit of God is at work in every person, every follower, every disciple's life every day. And sometimes you want to do it individually. Sometimes you want to do it in a corporate setting. And so, again, I, I believe the Holy Spirit has something physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally for every person here. I don't know what it is. You do because you, you know what they need. And so I just thank you for, the, for your ministry, Holy Spirit, and I thank you for bringing us together here. We ask for... <laughs> We ask for your grace today, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Acts. Our focus really is Acts 15, verse 11, and Pastor Brandon already read that. So we're going get to get to that in a moment. First, I want to <clears throat> kind of introduce my message this way. I love, I love Hallmark stores. I love going there. Although there are no longer any in this area, there wasn't one in the Tascadero for years. It probably disappeared about 10 years ago. The nearest Hallmark store is in Visalia. But again, I love Hallmark stores. I love going there. So many cards. I hate Hallmark stores. I hate going there. Too many cards. I love Hallmark stores. I love going there because I'm reminded of all the events, occasions, celebrations that I can buy cards for. I hate Hallmark stores. I hate going there because I'm reminded of all the events, occasions, celebrations I should buy cards for. It used to be so simple. There were just cards for births and birthdays, weddings and anniversaries, sickness and sympathy and thank you cards. Seven kinds of, seven kinds of cards about covered it all. It used to be so simple. It's not so simple anymore. The birth and birthdays, wedding and anniversaries, sickness, sympathy, and thank you cards are still there. But so are cards for, get ready, I've done my homework. So are cards for new job, new home, new cat, new dog, new car, new truck, new apartment, new kids. Cards for, I mean, I stood in, the, I stood in the stall, a Hallmark store for about 45 minutes one day and wrote all these down. Cards for leaving college, a lost tooth, 25th, 25th workplace anniversary, back to school, back to work, big project completion, bon voyage, kids' dance recital. Cards for associate degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctorate degree, graduation, promotion, potty training, and new adventure. And those last two go together. There are quit smoking cards, divorce and divorce announcement cards, driver's license, Eagle Scout, entering the Air Force, Marines, Army, Navy cards. Going to camp, good luck, special day, welcome back, thank you, thank you for your help, thank you for helping me through cards. There are dog care, dog sitting, doggy hugs, kitty kisses, cards for your cat, cards from your dog cards, daycare, doctor, dinner cards, musician wedding, mentor, manager, secret pal, special occasion, goodbye, good luck, miss you, keep in touch, I'm sorry, you're sorry cards. Love, long-term love, friend, friend through the years cards. Thank you. Thank you, hospitality. Thank you, caregiver. Thank you for your thoughtfulness. Thank you for being you cards. Chocolate to the rescue. Waiting for the toast. Cookies are calling cards. Marriage proposal. Engagement. Maid of honor. Best man. Bridesmaids. Groomsmen. We're pregnant. Parents-to-be. Father-to-be. Mother-to-be. Grandparents-to-be. Great-grandparents-to-be cards. Baby shower. New baby. Boy twins, girl twins, boy and girl twins, triplets, twins baby shower, christening, girl baptism, boy baptism, nephew baptism, niece baptism, 
granddaughter baptism, grandson baptism, great-granddaughter baptism, great-grandson baptism cards. There are cards for your veterinarian, manicurist, hairstylist, nurse, secretary, teacher, priest, minister, and boss. There are cards in Swedish, Spanish, Russian, Polish, Norwegian, Italian, Japanese, Hebrew, Greek, Finnish, French, German, Chinese. And if all else fails, there are cards that are blank. <laughs> I love Hallmark stores. I hate Hallmark stores. All of this came to me when I was down south. My brother, uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law lived down south. Brother and sister, brother-in-law and sister-in-law living down south. I was in a Hallmark store down south to buy some cards, and I saw a lady standing in an aisle. She's probably maybe 10 years older than I was, standing in an aisle with about four cards already in hand, searching with a puzzled look on her face through the wall of cards in front of her, looking for just the right expression of sentiment for the occasion at hand. Her eyes kept going back and forth from the cards in her hand to the one she was handling, taking out, putting back, taking out, putting back. I knew what she was thinking. And so I said, as I walked by, this used to be a lot easier, huh? And she said, uh, yeah, I have a theory. You know when everything changed, and I know if you're under 20, you're going like, everything changed when Baskin-Robbins came along. Everything changed. Before that, how many, how, many, how many flavors of ice cream were there? There was what? Vanilla, and there was chocolate, and there was strawberry, and if you put them all together, you got what? Neapolitan, so maybe four. And then Baskin-Robbins came along, and there were how many? 31. And then the flavor of the month. It used to be so simple. When I was a kid growing up, you walk in, let me see, uh, chocolate, uh, chocolate, uh, vanilla. Now it's like, oh. I mean, you used, to spend, you used to spend two minutes getting ice cream. Now you spend 15. It used to be so simple. Same thing happened with the Hallmark cards. Used to be so simple. I really don't hate Hallmark stores. I just get a little frustrated on occasion at all the cards. Sometimes there are, sometimes there are so many choices. I just can't make one. I have actually walked out of the store after about 30 minutes without a card because I could not decide which of the 119 cards from my birthday's my friend's birthday was just the right one. The interesting thing is that regardless of the occasion that it may celebrate or sentiment it may express, every one of those cards has something in common. And that is <laughs> that they are all cards. I know, you boy, Rick, that's really profound. Oh, I never thought about that. They're all cards. They just have a different function. And that sounds to me, church, so much like grace. You see, the expression of God, his character, nature, purpose, personality. His character, nature, person, personality takes place, for lack of a better term, in different styles and colors and sizes. But regardless of the expression, it's all grace. It's grace in different forms and fonts and flavors. Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. It is no strings attached kindness. It's just because goodness. Grace is so good that we can't adequately explain it. Francis Asbury writes on your notes, and there's notes in your bulletin, God is gracious beyond the power of language to describe, yes. And grace itself is really beyond the power of our language to describe. Jerry Bridges writes on your notes, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That's really powerful. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. There are times, seasons in our life, if you've been a Christian more than a week, there are seasons in our life when we feel like we've crossed the line. We've crossed the final line. God can't forgive me anymore. God can't reach me anymore. God doesn't love me anymore. Not true. Your worst days 
are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Conversely, your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Sometimes, again, we have those brief seasons. We think we're doing pretty good. We got it all figured out. We're cruising. We're one of God's cool kids. <laughs> and we don't need, yes, you do. You're never beyond the reach of God's grace. You're never beyond the need of God's grace. Our focus is Acts 15, 11, but I want to give you some background. So we're going to start in verse 1. I'm reading from the Living Bible. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers that unless they were Unless they adhered to the ancient Jewish custom of circumcision, they could not be saved. That would be pretty dramatic, wouldn't it? You're a Gentile at that period of time. You have this dramatic encounter with Jesus. Your whole life's turned upside down, and all of a sudden someone comes along and says, Hey, what happened to you? I met Jesus. Oh, wow. Well, do you still adhere to the customs of the old Jewish customs? Do you still, yeah, are you circumcised? No. Oh, you're almost saved. Almost? I thought it was. No, almost saved. Paul and Barnabas argued and discussed with them at length, and finally the believers sent them to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and elders there about this question. Arriving in Jerusalem, they met with the church leaders, and Paul and Barnabas reported on what God had been doing through their ministry. But then some of the men who'd been Pharisees before their conversion stood to their feet and declared that all Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow all the Jewish customs and ceremonies. So the apostles and the church elders set a further meeting to decide this question. At that meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you long ago to preach the good news to the Gentiles so that they also could believe God who knows men's hearts confirmed the fact that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he gave him to us. He made no distinction between them and us, for he cleansed their lives through faith just as he did ours and now you're going to correct God by burdening the Gentiles with a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear? Don't you believe that all are saved the same way by the grace of the Lord Jesus? There was no further discussion. I can imagine that was the case after he got through talking. There was no further discussion, and everyone now listened as Barnabas and Paul told about the miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James took the floor brothers, he said, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people to bring honor to his name. And this fact of Gentile conversion agrees with what the prophets predicted. And so my judgment is, my judgment is that we should not insist that the Gentiles who turn to God must obey our Jewish laws. Now, the reality is I could have read dozens of passages as a starting point for speaking about grace. But I'd been reading through Acts when I came to this passage, and I was arrested by what I read. The ministry of Barnabas and Paul and Silas had been extraordinarily successful and powerful. I mean, look back at Acts chapter 12, verse 24. Acts 13, verse 12, 42, 43, 48, 52. Acts 14, verse 1, verse 21. Extraordinarily successful. Everywhere they went, there were miracles. People were healed. People were delivered. Families, communities were saved. Powerful transformation. Extraordinarily successful, but it had been success. It had not been success without opposition. It says in Acts 13, verse 50, that there were men who, quote, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Acts 14, verse 5, records that there was a plot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Acts 4, 19 states that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and run the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Their ministry was fruitful, but it was costly. It's always costly. If you're going to serve God, there's a cost to serving God. I remember years ago, a book came out entitled, God Didn't Promise You a Disneyland. 
I think sometimes when we talk to people about Christ, we, we give them the soft sell. Just come to Jesus. Everything's going to be better. Yes. Especially, ultimately, yes. In the moment, maybe. Everything is better. Your name's in the book of life. Your sins are forgiven. And yet your immediate situation may not change. There's still going to be trial and test and struggle. There is opposition in this world for the believer. Their ministry was fruitful, but it was costly. There was opposition, but not all the opposition came from outside the church. There were those inside the church, Jewish converts to Christ who began, quote, began to preach, began to preach, began to teach the believers that unless they adhered to the ancient Jewish custom of circumcision, they could not be saved. The reality was that these Jewish converts were demanding that every Gentile become a Jew before they became a Christian. That's what they were saying. You have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. In effect, they were saying that the grace of God alone was not sufficient for a person's salvation. It was grace plus circumcision. Grace plus adhering to the ancient rules and regulations. We have people who preach that gospel today. It's grace plus. It's grace plus church attendance. It's grace plus tithing. It's grace plus water baptism. It's grace, grace plus, plus, plus. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. It's grace. It's grace. Peter's arguing against their point of view before the apostolic leadership. And the apostolic leadership is going to have to make a decision that's going to affect the message of Christianity from that point forward. I love what the Bible says in in verse 7. And this is what first caught my attention as I was reading through the passage. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And then in verse 14, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Did you hear that? God made a choice that the Gentiles, that's us, might hear and believe, and God showed his concern taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. That is grace. God's choosing us. God's concern for us and taking us as a people for himself, that's grace. And that's why the argument can be summed up in verse 11. We believe. It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. And that's what the apostolic leaders confirmed to be true, and that's the message we preach today. Is that what you believe? I love a feet well, I love a lot of the scripture. I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, we should probably quote verse 10 as well, because those three verses are meant to go together. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he ordained beforehand. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he ordained beforehand. The problem is some people get verse 10 ahead of verse 8. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he ordained beforehand. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. They make salvation the result of works rather than works the result of salvation. Salvation comes first, grace alone. Works follow after. That's not what these Jewish converts believed. That's not what they were trying to impose upon the church. That's what Peter, that's what Paul, that's what James, that's what they believed. And that was the decision that was made that day. Thank God, because that's the truth of the Scripture. I want to give you three words. First, the word grace and hospitality. First Peter 4, 9, and 10. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. Offer hospitality, for each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Church, grace is hospitable. 
Grace reaches out and invites people in. Grace draws people in. That's exactly what God did with us. He reached out and drew us in. There's a really powerful picture of that in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, but God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were spiritually dead and doomed by our sins, he gave us our lives back again. My mother abandoned my brother and I. I have a brother who's ten and a half months older than I am. When I was eight months old, she left. Now, my father was an alcoholic. My mother was an alcoholic. She'd already been married and divorced before. She had my brother. Ten and a half months later, I come along. She unsuccessfully tried to abort me on two occasions. And I know that because her twin sister, my Aunt Alice, confirmed that. She left. My dad married again when I was four, divorced when I was six, married again when I was 16 for three months. Never had any exposure to the gospel growing up. I lived in a really dysfunctional home. My father was not abusive, but he was incredibly neglectful because of his alcoholism. He lost numerous jobs, couldn't pay the rent on numerous occasions. We moved a lot. As I said, my father... And my mother, my mother died of alcohol-related illness. My father died in an alcohol-related accident. So I, if you're under 40, you won't get this reference. But having the childhood I had, I wanted something different when I got married for my kids. So I prayed after I got saved and prayed that God would give me a wife. And so God gave me a wonderful wife who grew up in a Christian home, a pastor's home. Right? Her, pa- her father's 95 years old now and pastored for like 60 years. Wonderful man of God. Wonderful home. Mom, dad, one brother, dog, cat, her. Wonderful. My, my, and again, if you're under 40, you're not going to get this. My wife's family was Ozzy and Harriet. My family was Ozzy Osbourne. Two... two so there's a lot of chaos in my life growing up, and I never heard the gospel, and I told myself, because of all the things I saw and experienced, that I would never drink. Well, <laughs> I got in high school, and I became a uh, first-rate alcoholic. By the time I was a senior, I, my senior year, and I did well in school. I did well in athletics. I did well in uh, forensics. I was in speech and debate. I did well. Got some scholarships. Did well. But I was... Um, a functional alcoholic every weekend. And in spite of my best intentions not to go in that direction, that's the direction I was headed. And I started a new job after graduating high school. I grew up in Santa Cruz, and the week before we were to start high school, I was going to go to Santa Cruz High School. Um, my dad got a job in Castroville. We went to Salinas, which was a kind of a culture shock. Went from the sand to the soil of the Salinas Valley, and so I, I graduated high school there, and I, I started going to Hartnell College, and I started a new job at a drugstore as a stock boy. There's a young man there named Scott. Scott was really nice. He was leaving for a better job, training me for his job. He was probably a couple years older than I was, and he started talking to me about Jesus. Now, I'd heard the name of Jesus, but not very kindly in the environment I grew up in. I didn't have really any idea who Jesus was. But he started witnessing to me about Jesus. He invited me to church, and I went to a church on a Sunday morning. And um, even though I didn't understand anything that was going on, I didn't know the songs, of course. You know, people are standing up and sitting down, and, and there are people, you know, in this particular church, people are raising their hands. People are singing very expressive worship. Um, even though I didn't really know what was going on, I couldn't figure it all out, I knew that there was something real there that I'd never experienced before. So he invited me again the second week, and I went the second week. And after the second week, I had a good time, enjoyable. But I, he invited me a third time on a Sunday night, September 27, 1970. And I wasn't going to go. And I kind of, you know, I kind of had figured out that maybe there really was a God at that point. So I'm kind of like having this conversation in my head. Hey, God, you know, I don't know. I, you know, Scott's nice, and he invited me twice, and it was all right. But I'm not sure I want to go again. I, I'll tell you how to go one more time. That's all I'm going to go, right? One more time. I went on a Sunday night. 
I can't remember who preached. I, I'm not sure it was the pastor. Maybe been the pastor. Maybe been a, a guest speaker. Comes to the end of the service and he invites you down. Jesus said, "No one comes to the Father. No one comes to me, but the Father draw him." So God draws. The Spirit convicts. The Bible says the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteous judgment. So the Father draws, the Spirit convicts, and Jesus saves. They work in conjunction with one another, right? So on that night, unbeknownst to me, because I had no understanding of spiritual realities at all at that point, unbeknownst to me, the Father was drawing me that night, and the Spirit was convicting me, and Jesus was going to save me. And So there was an altar call given at the end, and so I, I went down. I don't even remember getting down there. I don't remember getting down there. And they say that I was down there for 45 minutes. All I know is when I got up from there, I was a different person. When I went into the church that night, I didn't feel dirty, unclean. I didn't feel like I had a huge weight upon my back. When I got up from the altar that night, this is church, this is like a long time ago. This is like 50 years ago. I remember it as if it were yesterday. When I got up from that altar, I felt so clean inside. I felt like the weight of the world, literally like 100 pounds had been lifted off me. What happened was my sins had been washed away. That's why I was clean. And my guilt and shame had been lifted off and taken by the Lord himself. That's why I felt no weight on me anymore. I felt so different. I couldn't wait to get home and look in the mirror. When I got home and looked in the mirror and saw that I looked the same, I was disappointed. Because I felt so different. Something happened. I'd been born again that night. I didn't know any of the language. Before that evening, I certainly didn't know it that evening, but I just knew something was different. But God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were spiritually dead and doomed, I was spiritually dead. I was doomed by my sins. He gave me back my life again when he raised Christ up from the dead. Only by his undeserved grace, have we ever been saved? Remember that in those days, you were living utterly apart from Christ. You were enemies of God's children. And he had promised you no help. <coughs> you were lost without God, without hope, but now you belong to Christ Jesus. And though you were once far away from God, now you have been brought very near to him. Say amen, somebody. Say amen. What a list. Spiritually dead, doomed by our sins, utterly apart from Christ. Enemies of God's children, lost without God, without hope, away from God. That was you. That was me. But now you've been saved. I've been saved, brought very near to him. By what does it say? Undeserved grace. Grace is hospitable. Grace invites people in. Hospitality is a form of God's grace. That's clear from 1 Peter 4. Offer hospitality, administer God's grace in its various forms. Remember what I said earlier, that all those cards had one thing in common. They were all cards, regardless of the occasion they celebrate or the sentiment they express. They're all cards. They, only, they just have a different function. And in like manner, the expression of God's character, nature, purpose, personality, regardless of how it's expressed, its forms, fonts, or flavors, it's all grace. When I was pastoring in the Tascadero, you know, I, we always wanted to make the visitors feel welcome. First of all, we wanted to make our own people feel loved and, and needed. I mean, it's so appreciative. I met after the first service, I met one lady who had been involved in the church for 22 years. And I'm thinking, I mean, I wanted to give her a hug. I gave her a verbal hug. I said, I'm so grateful for you and for others like you. The church wouldn't exist if it weren't for you. You're, the, you're, you're there. You're there for the work days. You're there to teach Sunday school. You're, you're, whenever they need you, you're there. You give financially. You give of your time and talent and ability. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we always want to appreciate and affirm and make those people realize how loved they are. And yet, at the same time, we're always looking for the new people. We're always looking for the seekers, for the people who are looking for either Christ or they're just looking for a place to fellowship. And so every pastor, that's one of their passions. It's one of their... You know, they, they want to be hospitable and, and make new people feel welcome. And so we really made an effort at doing that. I'm out. I love talking to people. If you weren't here, I'd still be talking. It's just me. That's my personality. I love being out front on Sunday mornings. I was always out front greeting people. And I'm always obviously, you know, I know a lot of people and they're coming up and I'm talking to them. But I would always 
keep an eye out for someone that I'd never attended before. I'd made sure that I'd meet them and talk to them. I mean, I, I'd chase cars in the parking lot like a dog at the end of the I'd chase cars in the parking lot if I didn't get a chance to talk to someone. Knock on their window as they're waiting to get out of the parking lot so I could meet them, welcome them. And we always had, we had visitor's cards, right, where people could respond to the service and make comments or suggestions. And, and there, I have to say, you know, we got high marks most of the time in making people feel welcome, feel included. But not always. I mean, we got some visitor's cards that were harsh. People felt very unloved. Felt that we, for all intents and purposes, ignored them. There were times when we failed to reach out and invite or draw in people. But church, we can't, we can't, we can't fail at that. Because as the recipients of God's hospitality, we must be hospitable. We've been invited in. We must invite others in. We've received grace. We must give grace. The second word is grace and healing. Martin Luther wrote, grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes. He's right. Grace is not for the hero. It's for the hurting. Look at the story of the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. It's on your notes. Soon some men brought Jesus a paralyzed man on the mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, cheer up, son, for I've forgiven your sins. Blasphemy. This man is saying he's God, said some of the religious leaders to themselves. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked them, why are you thinking such evil thoughts? I, the Messiah, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. But talk is cheap. Anybody could say that, so I'll prove it to you by healing this man. Then turning to the paralyzed man, he commanded, pick up your stretcher and go home, for you are healed. And the man jumped up and left. Grace is hospitable. It welcomes people in, and grace is healing. It makes them whole. God is concerned about people's physical sickness. That's why he commands, commands prayer for those who are ill. James 5, are you hurting? Pray. Are you sick? Call for the elders of the church to pray and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Believing prayer will heal you. And if you've committed any sins, they shall be forgiven. The Bible is full of healings and encouragements to seek and believe and receive healing for your body. But God is even more concerned about the sickness of a person's soul. That's why he healed the paralyzed man's soul first. I have forgiven your sins, he said. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 24, 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word heal is used in the New Testament in reference to physical, physical healing many times, 22 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. But it's also used of spiritual healing. And that's the context in which it's meant in 1 Peter 2, 24, 25. Because our sickness was our sins. Our sickness was our going astray. Our healing is his wounding and dying for our sins. Healing is another form, another expression of God's grace. Grace is for hospitality, receiving people, and grace is for healing, restoring people. And grace is for heaven, redeeming people. We've received grace for healing. We receive grace for, for, for hospitality. We need to give grace in both those forms. Finally, again, grace is for heaven. Now, what I mean by that is grace ends in heaven. It ends with us there. Samuel Rutherford writes, grace tried is better than grace and more than grace. It is glory in its infancy. That's really powerful. Grace tried is better than grace and more than grace. It's glory in its infancy. In other words, what happens when grace grows up? What does it look like when grace is fully developed, mature, when it comes to its end? What does it look like? It looks like glory. And ultimately, what is glory for you and I? It's heaven. It's eternity in the presence of God. Jonathan Edwards wrote, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness to which our souls can be satisfied. There's more to the quote. I'm going to stop there. 
the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. I've had the privilege. I, I perform a lot of weddings now. I've always performed a lot of weddings, but I perform a lot of weddings now as a wedding officiant. In fact, I have two weddings this afternoon. And I, I love it. It's wonderful, wonderful opportunity to meet couples I would never meet, share in the best day of their life, work with other great people in the industry, and, and make a deposit of the grace of God in these couples' lives. I've done, I think, about 700 weddings over the course of my life. Wonderful. I've probably only done maybe a couple hundred funerals, celebrations of life, memorial services. And I, I lo- I, they're, a, they're a sad privilege because I love to share the gospel with people during those times. People tend to be more vulnerable during those times because they're having, they don't like it, but they're having to think about their own mortality as someone they love or know has passed away. Now they have to think about their own mortality, even just for an hour. So it's a wonderful opportunity to deposit the gospel in people's heart, to plant the seed, our water seed that's been planted already. So I, I use a quote when I give the gospel. One of my, as part of my giving to the gospel, weaving it into the, 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 the narrative of the day, I have a quote by C.S. Lewis. Now, again, I want to go back to what Jonathan Edwards read. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. C.S. Lewis says, and I use this at the funeral services I've done, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most likely explanation is I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most likely explanation is I was made for another world. And I say to people, I say, listen, it's, it's true, isn't it? No matter what we do, no matter how many fantastic restaurants we go to, vacations we take, cars we buy, houses we own, money we make, positions, uh, uh, you know, promotions we have, spouses we get married to, Every one of those things eventually leaves us empty. And so we have to have another dinner, another car, another house, another spouse, another promotion. Because you can't fill an eternal void with something tangible from this life. With an, with an, with an earthly, you're not going to fill an, an eternal void that's from eternity. And the Bible says that in, the, in Ecclesiastes 3.14 that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. So only something eternal is going to be able to fill that gap that's in your heart. So when, so when Everett says the enjoyment of God is the only happiness which our souls can be satisfied, yes. The only ultimate satisfaction is God himself. To go to heaven, to go to heaven, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God. Let me stop there again. The Apostle Paul, people are saying, Paul, what, what's heaven like? Tell us about it. What, describe it for us. Mm. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither has, has entered into the heart or imagination of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. You've never seen anything? <laughs> You've never heard anything like heaven? You've never seen anything like heaven? You've never imagined anything like heaven? That's what heaven's like. It's beyond description. That's what it's like. To go to heaven to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children are the company of earthly uh, friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. Yeah. Grace is hospitable. Grace is healing. Grace takes people to heaven. I love what Mark Twain said. Heaven goes by grace. If it went by merit, you, you would stay out and your dog would go in. <laughs> yeah. I want to end by sharing a story with you. I'm going to have the worship team come. True story. <clears throat> and, but it's more than a story, really. It's a lesson. Probably for the first 10 years. I have two sons. My 39-year-old son, Casey, worked for the government. He went to Cal Poly, went to Johns Hopkins, worked for the government for several years in Washington, D.C., and two, two grandchildren, the oldest daughter has special needs, and he really wanted to get back to California, so he traded in his really high security government clearance for another really good job and got back to Atascadero here. My oldest son is 42, and his name is Chris. Uh, amazing. They're both wonderful. Thank God. Thank 
thank their mom. It's their mom's fault. They're both wonderful. Um, he's been the director of Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of California, Santa Barbara for 17 years. Went to Cal Poly first, then he went on to Fuller Seminary, but he went to Cal Poly first. That's where he got involved in crew, got on staff on crew, and then has been in Santa Barbara for 17 years. For the first 10 years I was pastoring the church in Atascadero, I wore a suit every Sunday morning. That's just what we did. This was like in the late 80s, 90s. I wore a suit. Everybody wore a suit. I wore a suit. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, wore a suit. And I'm, you know, I'm out front greeting people on Sunday mornings. They're walking up. And I don't know what, what it is, but people just hand pastors stuff on Sunday morning, right? And so people, hey, pastor, could you, could, I'm not, I got to leave. Could you put this offering in the, sure. Hey, pastor, here's a check for the men's retreat. Hey, pastor, here's a check for the barbecue, you know. So I'm taking checks, I'm, you know, and, and, and notes and, and visitor's cards. And so, yeah, I got, you know, so I would go home every Sunday after church, and I'd unpack. I mean, I had stuff in my suit coat pocket. I had stuff in my pants pocket, right? Well, this particular Sunday morning, I had a gray suit on. This particular Sunday morning, I went home, and for some reason, I apparently didn't unpack. Hung the suit up, hung on my closet. Three weeks later, I had a, a wedding, and I knew the groom was in gray. I'd always try to match the groom, so I had this gray suit. So I went to my closet. I got this gray suit out. I put it on, and probably the first thing guys do after they put a pair of pants on is this. Stuck our hands in our pocket because who knows what's in there. Ooh, five bucks, right? My wife didn't find it. Good, right? So, so I stuck my hand in my pocket, and I, well, I'm sorry. Let me go back. On that, that particular Sunday morning, Daniel, a young man named Daniel, my son, same, our kids were nine and six when we came to the church, so Daniel was already in the church, and Daniel grew up with my son, and they became really good friends. So Daniel had walked up to me that Sunday morning, and he handed me a check, a folded check, and he said, give this to Chris. It's for, it was for crew, you know, sponsoring for crew. And I just, I said, hey, thanks, Daniel. I put it in my pocket, and I, I automatically assumed it was like 25 bucks. I mean, because Chris, you know, he would get a donation from people anywhere from 10 to maybe, maybe like, ooh, 100 bucks, right? So I probably figured, Daniel, you know, he's another, you know, 20-year-old, probably 25 bucks, maybe 50 bucks. Stuck it in my pocket. Again, I forgot to unpack that. So three weeks later, I put the suit on. I stick my, my hand in my pocket. I pull out. Oh, that, that check. Oh, I forgot that check. So again, I, I hadn't looked at the check prior to that day. So I opened up the check. It's a check for $4,754. Daniel had sold a house, and he gave, some, he gave that amount. He sold, made a good profit. He gave that amount to my son. I went, Ugh. right? I'm sure Daniel, now, he didn't give the money in order to get a thanks from my, my son, but I'm sure he was probably thinking like, man, I gave Chris 10 bucks before he said thank you. I gave him $4,754 to even give me a call. So I, I ran downstairs. I didn't have time to do anything. I'm on my way out because I'm going to, you know, be late for this wedding. And I said, you know, Phyllis, you know, Daniel gave a check for 4000 You need to call Chris. You need to call Daniel and tell him that Dad messed up. Right. And I was thinking, you know, that I got back home that day and I processed everything. And, of course, Daniel was fine, the fact that Chris hadn't called him, especially when he realized that I had not given Chris the check. And I, I just, as I'm thinking about that, I was thinking like, you know, the, I felt like God said, you know, Rick, I, I've given you a great treasure. I've given my people a great treasure, a great blessing. The blessing, the treasure of grace. And so many, sometimes Rick, you, and so many of, of my children, they put it in their pockets and they hang it in the closet. They don't avail themselves of my grace. For themselves, they don't share it with others. They don't use it as hospitality. They use it to bring healing, physical or spiritual or relational or emotional healing to people. They don't use it to bring people, to lead people to my eternity. Rick, you need to go to the closet. You need to get that grace out. You need to express it in hospitality and in healing and in leading people to heaven. A couple of weeks ago was Easter, of course. And, of course, for every church, for every pastor, there's... Every Sunday's big. I can tell you. Your, your pastor, I can tell you, your pastor prays and weeps and cries. And, and he's, he's just a human being. He's just like you. Has the same pressures, hopes, dreams, struggles that you have. I know that sometimes people don't think pastors are human or sometimes that God gives them a certain dispensation that they don't have the same fears, dreams, struggles that anybody else has. Oh, there, he's a pastor. God's got him covered. He doesn't he didn't worry about things we worry about. Yes, we do. And he has a young family, Right? But I want you to know, your pastor, he weeps and prays and 
fasts and studies and does everything he needs to do every week. And of course, the weeks of Easter and Christmas are particularly big, right? Because we, we know that the general public out there seems a little more responsive during that time of the year, a little more responsive to, uh, to invitations to church. And so we kind of put our best foot forward, right, during Easter and, and Christmas time. And so obviously Easter was a huge opportunity for grace, to minister the grace of God to people, people who were searching, people who had been invited by believing people, they were unbelieving, invited into a church service. But the reality is that every Sunday is an opportunity for grace. Today is an opportunity for grace. Tomorrow, even though it's not Sunday, is an opportunity for grace. And you and I need to avail ourselves of it. We're going to have communion. In fact, if you take your cups. If you need God's grace today, and some of you do, some of you need God's grace for forgiveness. Some of you need God's grace for healing, a relationship, or healing in your body, healing in your marriage. You need grace. If you need God's grace today, while we're taking communion, would you just ask God? It's not like he's going to go, well, let me think about it. Of course. Of course. And if you're willing to share God's grace, will you tell him? If you need God's grace, ask him. If you're willing to share God's grace, God, help me to be more gracious. Help me to pay more attention. Help me to take grace out of the closet and dispense it to people. I've received it. Help me to dispense it. If you need God's grace, ask him. If you'll share God's grace, tell him. Jesus, your broken body means healing for us. Your broken body means wholeness for us. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for taking our place on the cross. With gratitude as we eat the bread which represents your broken body, with gratitude, we, we partake. Scripture says without the shedding of blood there could be no remission or taking away of sin. I would still be in my sins on the way to spiritual death were it not for Christ shedding his blood for me and you'd be the same condition where not Christ shedding his blood for you but he has. Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood, which is our atonement, which is our salvation. Again, as we drink the cup, we do so in humility and with great gratitude. Let's drink together. This week, Lord, May, we not only recognize and receive the grace of God, may we dispense it towards others. In Jesus' name.